Uh-huh. Are those re- are those reading glasses? Yes. This is what 48 <laughs> means. Oh my god. I'm I am 100% sure you're wearing lenses. Welcome back to the Lighthouse Conversations, a podcast featuring entrepreneurs and tastemakers from the worlds of arts and culture, tech, and of course food. I'm your host, Hashem Montasir. If you're tuning in for the first time, make sure you hit the follow button in your podcast app to get alerted when we have new episodes. You can listen to our extensive catalog of episodes in the app or on our website at thelighthouse.ae slash podcast. My guest today is Ashraf Hibela, who is currently head of startup banking at Silicon Valley Bank, but also someone I met many years ago while we were both college students at Harvard University. Our conversation covers many aspects of his life, his experience growing up as an Egyptian-American in New Jersey, the venture capital world he interacts with daily as a tech banker, and his views on what might be in store over the next few years in tech and venture capital. I had to remind Ashraf that I haven't forgotten how well or not so well he performed in all the classes we took together. Mr. Ashraf, uh, good morning from Dubai. I can't tell you how much I've been looking forward to this episode since I've asked you to, to come on. I think you and I met, should I reveal how, how long ago that's been? <laughs> you know, it's somewhere between 25 and 30 years at this stage. Let's just put it, put it that way, because I met you as freshmen, as a freshman at Harvard. In fact, freshman week, we met both with our parents. And I'm just going to re- recite the story for the audience, because I think it's a little <laughs> bit of fun. Let's just say, and I'm saying it in a very nice way, neither of us took an immediate liking to the other. <laughs> is that, that is, that is, that is true? We came from very different worlds. Um, but it's actually kind of amazing that uh, even, even though I found you when I first met you to be a bit alien-like for my own predilections, there was an uh, there was also a subtle affinity that I didn't want to admit, and I think it's pretty obvious what that was. Thank you. I think the feeling was was uh, mutual. To be honest, I had the same thing, and that speaks a lot also about you know eighteen, nineteen year olds that are a little insecure that really were going to a new place, and yeah. I think at the time you know used to their comfort zone. And I think, interestingly enough, neither of us was the comfort zone of the other. I mean, I grew up yeah. in Cairo. Uh, uh, both of us have Egyptian parents. You grew up in the States, in New Jersey. Uh, so we've had, at that point, our parents had different paths, but you could see that the values they had when they met, which was, I found yeah. the interesting part, very, very similar. So they got along just fine. You and I were suspicious of each other because neither of us knew that type of specimen. So, you know, what's really, really strange, Hashem, is we didn't rehearse this. And that's exactly what I was going to say back to you is the thing I remember the most and the thing that gave me the comfort was seeing how my father and your father interacted. Specifically, I remember that engagement. And it was, it was so fluid. Yeah. And there was a sort of familiarity that um, instantly told me that this was a, it's not, it wasn't safe place, but it felt like home. And it started with the parents. It really did. Now, obviously, there was a nice affinity that your dad also got a degree somewhere in New Jersey. Um, that helped. That's that helped right. the conversation, but but in, but honestly, that was really the the thing that took, that made it take off. I think. No, I I agree with you. And at the end of the day, I think you know, as Egyptian parents or as any parents, both of them were looking for the same thing for their children. 
and you know we're both uh, the the second of uh, two siblings. I have an older sister. You have an older brother. So yeah. let's start there. I mean, give us a bit of a sense of growing up uh, in the U.S. as an Egyptian American in yeah. New Jersey in a predominantly Arab neighborhood. I mean, I've come and visited you many times. Um, how was that for you? Yeah, it changed. I would say you started seeing a much more of an Arab presence uh, sort of at the time I had left to college. It was predominantly an Italian Catholic neighborhood. I give, I give honestly, I give my parents a lot of a lot of credit. It wasn't easy to come to uh, to a location like I grew up in North Bergen, New Jersey, near the Hudson River, and to do that as one of the first true, like I would say, immigrants in that neighborhood wasn't wasn't easy. And I think I give a lot of credit to my, my dad never saw himself as an Egyptian in that neighborhood, as much as I think he, he carried and comported our family with, you know, pr- with pride and ethnicity. I, I, he, he was a Yankees fan. Yeah. He watched no, the I remember it was fascinating to me. He, yeah. he didn't feel like American culture was something that was that he had to, Alien. he had to find. Yeah. It was something that he felt he could own too. And that authenticity, I think, in many ways, endeared him to the culture of the neighborhood and made it easy for us to assimilate. Yet the values both your parents have and had, frankly, and I've met them many times, and you were kind enough and generous enough to invite me to your house many times over Thanksgiving and and other holidays when I had nowhere to go, frankly. Um, Their value system didn't change. So it's so interesting. They, They kind of, especially I think your dad, you're right, kind of very easily fit into kind of a more Americanized culture. But they had a Mendrog value system that was very clear. And that, to me, was always. And when I came to see you, they made it very clear what they expect of us. Yeah, no, for sure. I think, look, my, my mom and dad gave us, gave me and uh, gave my brother and, and me the leeway to, to be uh, who we wanted to be in a country that was ours. But but there but look, there was there was a sense of excellence that they that they instilled in us that. Um, that included our culture, our heritage, our language, our religion, and and they didn't they didn't um, they didn't compromise that. So on the weekends, you know, I would spend half of my weekends with some of my Italian Catholic friends in what they have a version of of, of sort of uh, school called CCD. It's catechism, and I'd go and learn about Catholicism with them, and then the next day I would go and 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 go to Jersey City, which is a neighboring town, and learn uh, Arabic and Quran and Tagweed and Tadewa. And it was it was their way of saying, like, look, like there is a sense of excellence that we need to instill in you. And that includes understanding your culture, religion, your heritage, and your language. And did you feel, I mean, this was way pre-9-11, things changed in the States for a while. And then they changed again, frankly. But let's just go back to did you or your brother feel you know, that you are sticking out because of the fact that you are Arab or the fact that you are Muslim, especially predominantly kind of Christian Catholic neighborhood? Very rarely. I mean, there were, there were always, there, you know, there's always going to be that one or two incidences yeah, that you remember and, 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 and that probably sort of are ingrained in these moments that you'll probably never forget. But in general, no, I mean, I think I think it, it really started from the from a foundation, really, that I'd say my dad owned, which was, um, you know, and I, I it's funny, I just use it as an example. It's just the Yankees weren't the American white males team. 
It was his team. It was a team he followed at 7 p.m. And so that that was something I think we carried we carried with us. Our my best friends were Italian and German. Uh, you know, they were just average American middle class kids. If I happened to find an Arab and I and I had Arabic friends in the neighborhood, it was because I thought that they were really cool and I liked to hang out with them. But but there wasn't this sense of um, of segregation between these are the ones I really want you to know. And here, here are the ones that like, you know, you could know, but only if you have time. It was very organic and we got to live our own lives. And within that, you, you spoke, you alluded a little bit about your parents' sort of sense of excellence, which is a very good way of putting it. Was that kind of, I don't want to use the first force because it's not forced, but was that kind of, you know, was that coming from them? You, you hear a lot of these sort of, you know, today, the kind of stereotypical immigrant stories, parents come, want the best for their kids, push them really yeah. hard. You know, the kids kind of begrudgingly tag along. Or was that something you had from the beginning? You were like, well, whatever I do, yeah. because when I met you, that's what I felt. Yeah. You were very good at it and it came easy to you. Yeah. You know, it's a good question, Hashim. I, I, I go back and I think my brother bore the blunt of being the first generation and the first and the eldest son. Yeah. So there were, there was a level of pressure he had on him because I didn't, I don't know if I've ever told you that, but when, when Nandit came, my brother is named Nandit. When he came to the States, he actually spent the first, I think, year or two of his life, or I don't know, two or three years of his life in Alexandria with my, with my, uh, with my grandmother and my uncle on my mother's side, um, because my parents needed to just have a job. They needed to just, they just needed to hustle. Get their act together first. My my dad was getting his master's degree in accounting. My mom was essentially funding the household with her nursing degree working in New York. There was no time to raise uh, two kids, well, one kid at the time. And so he was in Alexandria. He came not knowing much English. And and he had a little bit of flack when he came here with a bunch of American kids. And they'd never seen a foreigner, especially when living next door. And, you know, so there was a lot of pressure on him for my parents, like know English and learn. And so they really got on him and it's not no fault of their own. They just didn't know the system. I attribute a lot of where I ended up to my brother. I mean, part of it is I just kind of coasted through it. I consider him the smarter of the two of us. And I I got to just sort of coast through (laughs) his good habits. And I always just had a good role model with him. Um, And that honestly was, I would say, the disproportionate reason why I kind of ended up where I was. Your brother listens to the podcast. I didn't tell him we're doing this so that it'll be, I don't know, a surprise for him. Oh, I told him. Oh, I just, got off, I just got off the phone. Oh. Dude, he listens. He loves it. He loves your podcast. So sweet. I mean, it seems like it has a really good following, man. Yeah, it does. It does. And what's actually interesting, um, which is not the only reason I, I asked you to do this, and I appreciate it, but we have a lot of people in the States, and I don't know if those are like, it has to obviously be somebody interested in the region, right? So I don't know, I don't, but it's interesting. I don't know, man. I don't, I don't listen to it because of sheer interest in the region at all. I actually, I listen to it because there's, there are aspects of the beat of the court and, and sort of the ingredients that you put together for the podcast that's highly unusual and very differentiated. I, I mean, I do. And, and so it's like, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's the Middle East, but like, you're an English speaking, you know, like Harvard educated, you know, guy who's looking at the crossroads of culture, F and B and technology that just, it doesn't, that crosses the chasm of, of geography, right? Yeah, no, thank you. And now I feel, uh, I feel a lot better about myself. 
you know, I think you and I at the time before Bessel came were the only two Egyptians or of Egyptian origin at Harvard, which wasn't, sounds like nothing, but I think that meant something to us. And, and Egypt meant yeah. different things to different people. Obviously, I'm curious to hear your version. What does it, what did it mean to you then? And what does it mean to you now? It's it's so amazing, right? Like, um, you know, what do they, what do they say on, um, well, the, what was the uh, sound and light show, right? Does it, I know yeah. that's very cliche to say, but it was a really profound and I don't know who they quote, but it's one of my favorite things to go back and hear is when they say like, man fears time, but time fears the pyramid. There's, there's some, there's something sort of, and, and I'm, I'm going to stress on time. I think there's something about time that's just so powerful. And I think when, when I, when I think about what my heritage means to me, it's changed over the years. Mm. As a young kid, it meant something so different than being a college kid. And it means something completely different today. Just give us a sketch. Let's use college because we're at that point. Just a sketch of what it meant then. And then maybe we'll fast forward to today. I just want to give a sense of proportion here. Yeah. I mean, when I was younger, I was, I was studying it, right. I was Mm. going to school and I was learning Arabic. It was a lot of rote. And so my, my relationship to it felt highly academic, mm. somewhat clinical, uh, somewhat tiresome. I, I always appreciated it, but there was a lot of effort yeah. to, to sort of get to know it. And so it felt like a little bit of homework. And I think as, as I got to college and I, and I got to, I'd say, experience other Egyptians of my I guess uh, folks that I could connect with that were of my predilection that were going through a shared experience, it changed. It became home. It, ironically enough, it was like I was in Cambridge, far away from New Jersey. And the thing that made me feel at home were my other Egyptian friends. And so all of a sudden, it didn't feel like home was so far away. I never really felt homesick. And then as I'm getting older, interestingly enough, it it it's now a part of the capacity of you know, it's interesting is that, you know, as, as you're younger, you think about the future. And as you get older, you think, you know, what you become whole by thinking about your past and the richness of your past. And so your past becomes just as powerful as the future, I think, as you age. And for me, it's become a, a part of what makes me whole because I have such rich, profound uh, experiences and appreciation and memories of my culture and my time at home with my parents who are Egyptian and speaking uh, Egyptian at home, that past becomes a big part of your fuel as you get older. And when you, you're a parent now, um, so that is also a big change. Your wife is, is uh, not, not Arab. How do you now look at this in terms of giving your, your kids some context? I mean, I struggle with it and I live in yeah. Dubai um, and, and, you know, but I'm also not married to, to an Egyptian, I'm married to a Saudi, but obviously closer culturally, potentially, but yeah. how do you now, so, you know, think about that when you talk to your kids, what, how do you position it? It's harder. This has been a struggle for me. I'll be, I'll be really honest. You know, it, there's, there's, um, I, I wouldn't regret for a minute, um, you know, how my life turned out. I'm very blessed. Um, but, but I do, I did have to make peace hashing with the fact that like, you know, I could kind of barely write. I could probably barely read it. Um, you know, I could kind of barely put it together myself. Uh, for me to carry the mantle and instill that in uh, younger, essentially American children um, raised by an American mom, 
um, was going to be Herculean. And so I had to honestly mourn my ability to do it. And and some people might call that lazy. I, I got to pick my battles. I mean, life's oh, hard, it's, right? It's a transformation. And I assure yeah. you, they will get something. It's going to be very different than you. And I think we Absolutely. all have to make peace of that. And that's a part of it, right? Is, is I think, look, I, I they may and they may not. I'm trying to be more realistic about it, which is, you know, I'm sure that the first generation Italians that came to America um, spoke generally more fluent Italian, probably had a better handle on Catholicism. I'm not saying all, I'm giving you the broad generalization. And over time, they assimilate. You carry a whole lot of guilt to be the first generation that lets it drop, if you will. I just had to come to a place where I said, I got a morning. I've raised incredible children. I've married a woman who even my Egyptian mom would say is probably the most patient, kind, kindest, you know, mom and woman that she's met in her life. Genuinely, that's a high bar. And that's a high bar. And so there's something wonderful about saying, look, I'm not going to be able to pull this one off. They're not going to be fluent in Arabic. They're probably not going to know uh, the way I did when I was, you know, 13, 14. But um, they all have their own journey, to your point. When that's going to happen, I don't know. I'll, gi- I'll give them the access and the privilege for it. Let's make sure we spend some time in Egypt when they get older. Let's make sure that we're spending time as a family. And then let's let the good fortune of life give us the upside. That's the part that's hard to do is like how, and not everything's in your control. And I'm talking about that just beyond just raising kids. I think it's part of it's just mourning that not everything's in your control, but also don't mourn it to the point that like the rest of it's all downside. It's not like life has its optimistic upside. Enjoy, let the joy of the journey of letting that upside happen, happen um, and just be in the conversation. So that when those opportunities happen, you can exploit them. So you were in college here, you are in college, you know, you're doing well. When was or was there an early formation of one of what you wanted to do with your life in the sense of, oh, I want to broadly be in this industry or my ambition is X or was it sort of like, I'm going to keep going and see where all of this takes me? That was the part that was hard. I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, I I was not and I don't I don't by any means uh, disregard my my academic or intellectual acumen by by any means just being clinical. But I wouldn't say. I, you know, that I was the smartest person at Harvard. It was an incredibly humbling place to be. And and it was, you kind of start getting into the sort of herd mindset of how it works in these elite schools. And so seeing people going and deciding that they need to absolutely get the job at McKinsey, get the job at Goldman Sachs, all the tier one names. And that hasn't changed, by the way. That hasn't changed. No, it hasn't changed. And by the way, it didn't change when I went to Stanford for business school. It was the same. Same It was the same sort of pressure. And so I, I wasn't, I don't think I was fortunate enough to have uh, the full strength not to go through that process. But interestingly enough, it actually, and I was an economics degree, uh, I was an economics uh, major, as you know, but it was, it was sort of during that junior year when Netscape really took off on the yeah, college. We, we had email, I think our second year in college, yeah, I it, make us sound it, ancient. We used to go to the science yeah, center to check the email. Right, that's right. There was... There was that old that Turbo Gopher. It wasn't Netscape. It was Turbo Gopher. And I remember Turbo Gopher was the file sharing system that predated uh, the sort of front end internet browsers. And I just remember seeing it. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. 
Like this stuff is foundational. This is this is a fundamental shift in the paradigm. I know I did economics. So you weren't like, aware of it. That's so interesting. Oh yeah. No, I was I was hooked on Turbo Gopher. I want to tell junior. you it completely went over my head. So was that what made you eventually, and I'm fast forwarding here, but a go to California? I mean, that's a big move, right? Your family's on the East Coast. You grew up there. Yeah. There's a comfort zone, all sorts of things. And I mean, you know, it's interesting, right? I mean, you know, your brother, as you said, eventually wind up coming to the Middle East and now lives in Abu Dhabi. Yeah. But you went yeah. almost, I mean, you know, I mean, the other way, right? Like I'm calling you right now and there's 11 hour difference. Mm-hmm. Was that, again, conscious given what you've just said or was that sort of somewhat happenstance no it was very much a conscious decision i it's it's like there's at the micro level career-wise up until you know i probably my 30s i i wasn't really sure you know what i was doing i was taking product management jobs and program management jobs and all of them were incredibly interesting jobs in in their own right but i didn't have a career in mind. My macro roadmap is I knew I loved technology, but I also loved economics and finance. And I couldn't quite put it together on the micro side. But the wonderful thing is, is I never afraid to switch paths um, from those two macro desires. And I went to, I, I got to Stanford, I got a free ticket to go. And so I took, by the way, points from, from, from Anderson Consulting Days, and I went to uh, Palo Alto and I was on 280 and I saw the majesty of that landscape and it was over. Like, I was like, you know what? Like something in my gut tells me I have to be here. So after moving to California and finishing up at Stanford, Ashraf started out in enterprise software, going to work for one of the first CRM companies, Zebel Systems, which was eventually sold to Oracle. This kicked off the next phase of his career, resulting in him joining Silicon Valley Bank in 2009. When we come back, we'll get Ashraf's thoughts on the startup world, both in and out of Silicon Valley. That's right after the short break. Welcome back. I'm Hasha Montasser, and you're listening to the Lighthouse Conversations with my guest, Ashraf Hebela. Do you think that Silicon Valley will be able to maintain its hold the way it has. We have now seen a lot of the Silicon Valley big VCs uh, build outposts in New York. Um, you know, I'm going to just stay with the States for a second and not look at Europe and China, et cetera. Yeah. But uh, we've seen people move to Los Angeles. We've seen big companies that have become unicorns and beyond the snaps of the world also move to places like Los Angeles. It feels more dispersed. And you've also yeah. had COVID. So now you've had the work from home phenomena that's come in yeah. in a lot of those companies. So there yeah. was a moment, I imagine, I, I have not lived there, have not had the benefit of the experience you've had, but where I can imagine walking into a number of restaurants or coffee shops mm-hmm. uh, where you see everyone, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. I don't feel that's the case anymore. It's been dispersed and technology partially has made that happen. Yeah. Um, so. There was a lot of uh, uh, strength in that network and that physical uh, connectivity and proximity. What's your feeling on where this is heading? Well, look, I mean, it, I don't have a crystal ball. No, I of think course not. Your view. There's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of, of really forward. smart people that would take both sides of that that are far smarter than me. I, I would tell you that I don't think 
Northern California, Silicon Valley gets usurped that easily. Um, and we can go into the details. And I also think it's a little bit of um, it's a little bit of a false of a of a false choice. Uh, this idea of well, if these areas like Miami and Austin and and the DMV and the Midwest are growing, well, then by virtue of that, NorCal must be shrinking. It's a it, that's a false that's a false narrative. In reality, the denominator has expanded. The pie, yeah. And that's the idea of what I was saying about that verticalization of technology has now been horizontalized. Everybody needs technology. And so when you look at, for example, the investor base, the capital that's being deployed into it, it isn't just the endowments, the standard endowments uh, from universities uh, or pensions. Now you got sovereign wealth funds. Now you have you now you have family offices. You got multifamily offices that are now durable capital. It's not fickle capital that it was 15, 20 years ago. You've got you know you've got private equity that's coming into well, into so the in a big way. That that capital allows that pie to grow significantly. Now also look at the entrepreneurial side. It used to take you about a million, a million and a half dollars to start a company because you had to buy expensive servers. You had to own all the servers. There was no fractional clouds, you know, um, hosting. So the 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 cost of also starting the businesses has significantly declined with the advent of infrastructure technology, right? And so it's cheaper to build a company. There's more capital to deploy against those companies, the pie is getting bigger. The number of kids, uh, students that are graduating with comp sci degrees is increasing. I run our analytics group as well at the bank. And what we've seen in that data is Northern California has maintained in aggregate, roughly maintained its market share of company formation and company investment. Yeah, it's so interesting you're saying that. I kind of agree because when I look at venture capital as a whole, People for sometimes lose sight. It looks, because technology is always in the news, right? It looks like a very big industry. It really isn't compared to others. I mean, look at private equity. Look at the big yeah. players in venture capital today, the Andreessen Horowitz, Horowitzes of the world, which are perceived, perceived as giants, are actually quite small in comparison to the Blackstones and KKRs who have attacked, you know, many multiple industries, including real estate, et cetera. Now, what's interesting is all those crossover investors that you've seen coming in. Yeah. Do you think the last hit and the market, massive market declines that we've seen this year have taught them a lesson? You think everybody's going to stay in his lane for a little while? Or do you envisage going forward the Andreessen starting to do public ETFs, let's call it just staying in tech, uh, and and the you know the the tigers of the world coming further and further down into rate you know round CBA which is what's been happening. So do you think yeah. this is going to all kind of coalesce into just larger funds that do everything, or what's happened in the market of the last fifth let's say five six months is going to bring us back to let me stay in my lane. That's what I know and that's what I'm going to stick to. Great, great question. I'm actually seeing that private equity is learning a lot from venture capital and venture capital is learning a lot from private equity. They're learning from each other and I think they're both here to stay. So I think in the long run, the idea of private equity leaving just doesn't, it doesn't, I don't think that happens. I think I think that capital is here and it, go, it goes back to the fact that this horizontal play in technology, everybody knows it's a fundamental part of the economy. 
Um, even corporate venture capital has been way more durable than it's ever been. They're not going away. Here's the other interesting thing, Hashem, is this is a wonderful thing for entrepreneurs. And this is one of the things I've been talking a lot with founders, which is I know, and I obviously love the venture model. Silicon Valley Bank loves that venture model. They've been amazing partners to us, and we continue to double down on the on the venture environment. But the wonderful thing is there's a panoply of capital that's out there for an entrepreneur to access. I think entrepreneurs need to also smarten up about how much variegated types of capital are available to them and which ones make the most sense. Hmm. It, it isn't just that you have to go for private equity anymore or that you have to go for debt or that you have to go for venture capital. You can you can go uh, directly to a, you know, you can go with an emerging manager. You can go with the family office. You can go direct to a sovereign. Um, you can go with private equity, not venture. You can go with venture, not private equity. There's very different aspects of that cap table with a very different board profile of who you put on there. So I do think it's incumbent on entrepreneurs to say, what do I want to build? Do I want to build a unicorn or do I want to build a model that is going to be great, but it's looking for an M&A? Or do I want to build a business that's more of a $30 million, $50 million valuation? I'm good with that. That all defines who you want to get capital from. So, so just to translate this a little bit to our audience here, Ashraf, this last point you made, which I think is a very important one. If I'm an entrepreneur today and I go direct, as you said, let's just say I go to Harvard Management Company, then I'm in Harvard University, and I, I asked them to directly fund me. I'm presuming here that one of the benefits are this is very patient long-term capital. The second benefit is this is not a fund like an Andreessen or, or Sequoia or any of those funds, nothing against those funds, I'm just saying, that has an, their own respective LP group that's, that is a, a, a finite period, typically, let's say 10 years, with the pressures that come with that. Now, the downside is the Sequoias and Andreessens and others presumably add a lot of value to that uh, manager, to, sorry, to that entrepreneur, because they've seen this Harvard management company, that's not their expertise. So just to make yeah. it very simple, if Hashem today starts a company, yeah. what is it, does it depending on the type of company I'm building, who I should access, or does it depend on me as a person? Like both. I mean, it's okay. both. I think it's, 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 it's fundamentally both. I think, if you're looking to look, and this isn't, by the way, this isn't a ding on tier one venture. No, no, capital. no, no. It's not a ding here. If you're raising a, if you're if you're raising a five billion dollar fund, mm. and your LPs need, and you know that you're going to have maybe two or three companies that are going to make your fund with at, at a multiple, you're going to have to have major home runs. You're going to have to knock the ball off that. You can't knock the cover off that ball, right? And so by virtue of that, the incentive of those larger funds are going to say, I need you to be a unicorn. Like, I, yeah. I can't settle it with you being The a, math doesn't add up otherwise. The math doesn't add up. And so you as an entrepreneur need to say to yourself, do I want this thing to be a yeah. 5, 10, you know, $50 billion valuation company, in which case... I should go towards a financial model and an operating model that is built with an infrastructure that almost necessitates that. That's perfect alignment of capital and objective of entrepreneur. On the other hand, if my answer is, is look, I want to create, you know, uh, $150, $250 million exit. And I'd like to get folks that have a great network in financial services 
um, that you know can help me operate and introduce me to really good financial services companies, you probably don't necessarily need to go with a five or seven billion dollar fund. You could probably go with um, you know a a two hundred and fifty million dollar fund. You've met a lot of entrepreneurs. You know a lot of entrepreneurs. You has both personally and as SVB have funded a whole ton of you know companies over the years, etc. When you look at those those uh, guys and girls, let's say, um, and someone says, you know, as you said, now I'm, you know, or my stated objective really is to build a hundred million dollar company, and I'd like to sell it. Um, is your thought process, oh, not ambitious enough? Or is your thought process, wow, he really knows what he's doing, he's realistic, versus the other one. And I'm yeah. going to give you now the contrast, the other guy who comes in or girl that comes in and says, I want to yeah. build the next unicorn. Yeah. Um, are, are, are both needed or are you looking at one or the other, either one saying, of course, sounds ridiculous, it lacks ambition because... 100 million is, is, is does not say lack ambition, but in the world of Silicon Valley with all these unicorns, maybe. So how are you looking at this? Yeah. How are you evaluating the entrepreneurs? And, and I'm sorry, the follow-up question to this is, let's just talk generally about the kind of traits you like to see that give you comfort. And your first question on ambition with, you know, if you're going to sell it pre-unicorn status. You know, so we, I did an analysis with the team, you know, oh gosh, I don't know, six years ago when I was really deep in the uh, analytics side of the, of the business and I was sort of doing the, the, the dirty work. Um, it, we looked at a bunch of like the major exits and we tried to, it, and we tried to peel the onion back, like, okay, fine. Like what, what was the piece of their successes? And exactly. we created this, this visual map. One of the insights we made is that it takes about two and a half companies uh, in general for one of these founders to create outsized return to that level. In general, I'm just, we were doing arithmetics, right? So this isn't like, you know, these are abstractions of reality, but in general, it was a two and a half company um, formation before you can kind of hit big. Um, and so the, fir the first time founders are real, like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is real. Um, you know, Sergi's real. Um, like these, these folks are real, and they're the first-time founders. So there's there's real data behind this concept of uh, second-time founder, or you know, multiple oh, yeah. founders oh, of yeah. multiple companies. Okay. Oh yeah, that's yeah. So interesting. And so and so when so that's my way of answering your question, which is like mm -hmm. it. I don't when when I'm at when we're at Silicon Valley Bank, we're not just building the relationship with in America. It's the sort of EIN. The, the sort of employment, the employer, the employer uh, identity number, right? The company's unique identification number. We don't just build the relationship with the EIN. We, we actually focus on also building a relationship with the SSN, the social security number, the person, not just the company, but the person. A part of it is because it's, it's super easy for you to think that the, to focus on the, uh, the, when you think client experience, the, the client journey as the, as the founder in this company. I think that's a very myopic way and it's very short-sighted. The actual journey, you got to peel that onion back. Yes, it's the company, but it's really the founder. It's really the employee. It's really the engineer. She's the one that you really want to build that relationship with over the long run. Because if you believe in this repeat founder mentality, it's going to be that first company. They're going to learn some stuff. They're going to build a network. They're going to get the best of those folks to come on board, build that other company. 
they now have a little bit of success to go get tier one capital. That tier one capital comes on. They're smarter about how to build the right board. Now, all of a sudden, their probability of success increases in that second or third um, company formation. But, but those repeat founders, I mean, if you built a company and sold it for $100 million, from a financial perspective, you're set for life. What yeah. makes them tick? Why is this guy or girl going yeah. back to build a second company knowing it's very arduous and there's a high probability of not yeah. succeeding and almost undoing your initial success? I got I get asked that, like, you know, whether, you know, from reporters all the time, like when I think, why am I, you know, why do I have optimism that there's an enduring quality to the innovation economy? My simple answer is builders build. That's what they do. I, I don't think that like, like, so remember that some of the most successful companies were built during downturns. Yes. There's something wonderful about downturns because 100%. if you're crazy enough, it focuses your, 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 Oh my God. Like you can't go spending random money in SG and a and building some ancillary orthogonal product and spending Stop. you know, time opening up an office in Miami. Like there's Stop. focus, like, Go, you know, go basically take all of the stuff that's that that is dead weight on your ship, throw it overboard and focus on the essence of your product, become better general managers with better cash positions. And then, by the way, you're probably crazier than most because you still want to do it. Yeah. And so some of the greatest companies, the most enduring companies are built during pain. And, and it's not like you walk in and there's, you're just glutton for punishment as an entrepreneur. I think you're just so committed that you can't literally, you can't think about anything else to do but build this thing, whatever that thing is, because you feel it's missing in the world. But, but there are also cases where it tips over and it becomes ego-driven. It becomes a little bit, and you've seen many of them in Silicon Valley, you know, and, and many that have been in the press and so on. So I'm not going to go into through names, yeah. but- at what point, and it's a bit of a philosophical question here, yeah. but also, frankly, relates to a lot of the things also you did in your career and your life. Yeah. At what point does it become too much? And, and, and that becomes, those people, and I've seen it, they become yeah. unpleasant. You know, yeah. it is no longer about building. It actually is about them only. This is where I'm not going to absolve great entrepreneurs and Silicon Valley and, and, the, and the environment I love dearly from the ills of things that we can create and the and the externalities, the negative externalities. Lack of balance in many ways, it, Frank. So I'm not absolving our, ourselves of of being ethical, um, working through the governance process within the laws and doing things the right way. We've had cases where you know folks have done the wrong things, but that happens in any in yeah. any environment. And, and Silicon Valley is not above that. We need to always build a foundation of, of ethics to what we do. And absolutely. How, now, now, here's where I'd say, but what I actually sort of take a little bit of issue with is, you know, wow, they went really rogue. They went really big. They went way bigger than they should have and all that good stuff. Remember, we're in the alternative investment asset class. In, in sort of in finance speakage, we're at the top right side of the efficient frontier. And that top right side is defined not just by return, but by variance. Yeah. And so to That's me, risk. Yeah. Collateral damage is almost 
definitionally part of part of the game. It's, this is the necessary component yeah. of the asset class that you're in. So yeah. again, remember, I'm not saying, okay, so go do wrong things and do no, no, that's no, not no, what I'm saying, but I'm saying those folks that are riding and, you know, we call them the eccentrics that are running around university Ave and they're thinking about all these weird ideas and they're so meta and they're out of touch with reality. That's the asset class that you, that's called good portfolio management. If yeah. you wanted them to be normal and doing all the stuff and suited up and driving the you know the the normal you know the quote unquote normal cars and doing the non techie stuff that's called either a growth stock or a value stock that's a dividend paying environment that's not the asset class in fact these folks are doing what good portfolio management theory wants them to do which is to co-vary with core large cap slow growth equity which by the way isn't bad it is obvious that you're trying to show off your uh, stat 100, whatever the class that we took. And I recall very vividly that you didn't do so well. So I have a <laughs> feeling that there's a little bit here of trying to show off that you did actually pay attention. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of myself. I, I rehearsed that for years yeah, waiting say, for this. For especially this when you threw in the word covariance. I mean, that I really, because that was at a part of the class where, frankly, you were not paying attention. So it's <laughs> good. It's good. <laughs> uh, well, look, on that note, I have a, a, a concluding question for you that kind of relates to all of this and hopefully ties it in a bit. If you were, if we would go back now and if you were starting today at college, if you were at Harvard today in your freshman or sophomore year, what would you advise a younger Ashraf? Would you um, still say, go do a combination of, you know, economics and, and some t- uh, maybe some, you know, computer science classes? Or would you say, do whatever the hell you want? It actually doesn't matter. Ultimately, it's about your values and your work ethic and you're going to figure it out. What would you advise that younger version of yourself? The, the non, I no, I would say the kinder, gentler version of me would say, you know, have some meta ideas of what you want your path to be, but don't over overdo it. I, I, you know, one of the things I tell entrepreneurs is, you know, yes, luck will find you have enough cash in the bank for like luck to have the highest probability of yeah. finding you. So there is a little bit of logic. And so for me, it's kind of the same thing as like, Find some meta ideas of what needs to happen and have an enduring sense of where generally you want to be so that the the right version of luck will find you. Uh, Luck is going to be there and it's going to need, but the type of luck that you need needs to kind of be structured around the path that you want to go to. So have some meta goal. I do think, you know, the selfish part of me Mm. wants to say, but gosh, if you can do something in STEM, do it. You know, I love this country. I love Cali. You know, there's a lot of people right now that are hating on California. I'm a I'm a Jersey kid. I'm loyal to where I am. This this state has been great to me. So I do have I do have an affinity for this country that way. And I, I feel like you know, science, technology, engineering, and math is critically important for the success of the United States in the long term. Me and you both know the value of total factor productivity and what that does. Um, for for an economy, and that's all. That's all innovation. That's all invention. And that I, I think, for better and or for worse, is going to come from STEM. And so, the, the more we can kind of intrinsically build uh, a a workforce of the future, we're going to need a lot more STEM, and we're going to need elevated level of STEM of, of STEM graduates. I would try to push that 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 ashraf towards that for the better of the country. Would you move to 
you're graduating tomorrow morning, would you be taking a job with a hot startup or would you be taking a job because there's still that herd mentality with whatever the equivalent of the Goldman Sachs and the McKinsey's, if not, in fact, McKinsey and Goldman Sachs, they haven't changed yeah. that much. Because I think that's something a lot of these graduates uh, that have that benefit and the privilege to choose are going through. I've gotten the privilege of getting to know a, a well, the, the most success, one of the most successful general partners who happens to be also um, female in the, in Silicon Valley. And her name is Teresa Gao. Um, you know, um, just a luminary in the space, early Facebook um, and doing amazing things now and at Aspect Ventures. Um, you know, she, I asked her that question. She said, you know, I would probably go with a series BC company in the private firm that has good tier one capital. Um, and why, why did she say that? And now I really understand it. You're getting a lot of the value of a late stage scaled company. So you're not learning mistakes. But it's not so early that you're like pre-product market fit and you're learning a lot of hacky, spaghetti Cody, you know, shoot, you know, shoot from the hip type stuff where there's no foundation of best practices for you to learn. Um, you've got probably at that point some pretty seasoned general managers um, that are all stars. Um, and you've got really enduring capital. So you don't have to worry probably about raising your C or D. Um, she felt like that was the sweet spot. I kind of from my experience, agree with her. It's it's it really is that perfect spot of getting both of the best the best of both worlds. So for any any uh, budding uh, uh, students that are or kids that are listening to this, hopefully they'll be listening. That's uh, that's the path you'll 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 choose. That's interesting because you started name name dropping. I'm going to just say that Mo Salah came to the lighthouse not twice but three times. Okay, since you opened that oh. door, nothing trumps wow. Mo Salah in our world. So just that you know. Uh, I want to put that on the record. It has absolutely nothing to do with anything we've said, but I felt the need to name drop. I have no doubt in the world that you would beat the heck out of me in a name dropping competition. Yeah. I was going to um, say Will Smith, by the way, but it's not. Will Smith is not the same cachet maybe you had a year ago. So I stuck with most of that. But jokes aside and, and non sequiturs aside, <laughs> you know, that's the other part that I think is an amazing time that we live in. You know, the most loss of the world, the LeBron James of the world, the Steph Curry. Steph Curry has a fund and he's doing really well. I think he's on fund too. Like these folks, by the way, a lot of the warriors, the the, the basketball players in Northern California, a lot of them actually, you know, and I, I don't want to start rumors, but I've understood that many, many folks have come through the Warriors organization to actually also build their venture acumen. Serena so, Williams. I mean, we just heard so, it last so, week. I mean, so you told me this idea, by the way. Remember, you you, you talked to I me do, about this I a couple do. of years I, ago. And 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 so there is a there's a fascinating time right now where also people are there's there people are understanding that innovation is also um, a place to create and creators now are coming from all spaces innovators are that it's becoming a, a sort of a place to congregate for singers and artists and musicians and athletes and by the way they have good capital there's enough sophistication in the way we create cap tables today that their capital is deserving and has a necessary and 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 desired place in the cap in, in sort of the in in, in the structure of a, of a cap table. And on top of that, we actually now know how to exploit the knowledge that they have in a way that we could then manifest it into technology technological innovation. It's a wonderful time, and you're seeing that cross pollination, which, by the way, is no surprise 
why LA is now the third largest invested capital area in the United States. It's after California and New York. The dreamer economy of LA is really exciting. Man. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought this up because I think it's really important um, as, as you also were giving some advice on, on a sort of younger Ashraf for people to understand that it doesn't need to be that path only. If you are not interested in, in, in maths or sciences or engineering, it doesn't mean you can't find your path to not just succeed, but also monetize this in a way that is in full uh, um, sync with starting your own fund or building something around it, et cetera. Those tools are being built. And I think that's that actually, to me, makes it a lot more fun, right? Sitting a little bit today, um, having been a banker for a long time and sitting a little bit more on the creative side of things now and looking at that intersection, it's really critically important that people understand it's not either or. I mean, look at your own business, Hashim. I mean, are you are you a, a cafe F&B concept or are you also a content creator who is also using uh, F&B potentially? And I'm not saying that's what you're doing as a backdrop for no, a no, larger a, a larger ethos about 100%. recreating the concept of social culture uh, with the backdrop being F&B and recreating the idea of the, the human experience that's both online and offline. This is this is what yeah, you're doing. I appreciate that. Is, I feel is a lot that better about pure, myself now. <laughs> what, is that pure off-prem or is that is no. that is that technology? It's, it's a mix. As well? It's a mix. No, no question exactly. about it. Just as a kind of concluding note, that uh fascinating and very interesting. It's exactly what you said. It's not offline, it's not online, it's a mix. And I have to constantly sit and say, you know, which tool do you put in where? It's like a bit like a puzzle. And you're trying to build something, but you have to have, especially in that business, I mean, a, a longer term view and you can't be short termist about it because these things don't build themselves quickly. Um, but yeah, and really the main key was here for me personally, at least, was what we've just talked about is that I felt I wanted to marry both those interests. You know, I didn't want to be purely in the world of finance or technology. And I didn't want to be purely in the world of content creation either. I'm trying to find something in between. And that exists. You just have to find your own path. Um, yep. Ashraf, that's been fantastic conversation. I, I can't tell you, I feel like now my day is going to be very different than uh, an hour and a half ago when we started. Um, I think a lot of people will be very interested to hear your views and, and uh, some of the wisdom you've imparted on us all. Thank you for doing this. Um, Inshallah, in a couple of years, we're going to do this again, maybe even before, uh, because I think the world around you is changing so fast that uh, that it probably requires second and hopefully third conversation. Thank you. No, I, it's my pleasure. And I'm a big fan of what's going on in, the, in MENA and the type of, of, uh, of entrepreneurs that we that, that are coming out of, of MENA. I'm even seeing ideas in the United States that actually started Actually, in Mina, I was actually on the phone with the founder, and he got he a lot of his inspiration was from Katobi. So, so I'm starting to right. see, I'm starting to see that it is it is starting to build its own personality with its own uh, innovation culture. I think so. I too. see great things coming for Mina. That's great. That's great. Thanks, Ashraf. All right. Have a right, good Hedda. rest of day. We'll speak very good. soon. All the best. Thank you. you. All right. You too. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us on the Lighthouse Conversations with me, Hashem Montasser, produced by Chirag Desai, and our content director is Farah Sharif. You can connect with us on Instagram at the Lighthouse underscore AE 
and listen to all our previous episodes by visiting the lighthouse.ae slash podcast. Or just press the follow button on your podcast player, whether that's Apple, Google, Spotify, or Anremi. We'll see you again in two weeks.